Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you, we see you, and we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film What's Love Got to Do With It from 1993 with my wonderful guest, Rukmini K. Desai. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I'm your host, Sarah Greenfield. And today I have my wonderful guest, Rukmini K. Desai. So thank you so much for being on the show today. We watched the film What's Love Got to Do With It from 1993. Um, It's a more modern classic. I am so glad we watched this film. It had been a while since I'd seen it. Rookie, what did you think? I still love it. It has been a while since I've seen it, but I still love it. I watched it again this past weekend and I was living for so many moments. Well, and I don't know about you, but I'm not always a fan of biopics and we can get into that in a minute. But like, for me, this is one of the biopics that really does such an excellent job as a film. Like it does everything it needs to do as a film and as like a human being storytelling machine. Like we get her whole story and it's still an excellent film. It like does not have to compromise, you know? Or embellish or add things. We'll go into a plot synopsis of the film. Basically, this film is the life story of Tina Turner. It's based on her book, I, Tina, that she wrote with Kurt Loder um, that came out in the 80s. It's about her whole life story of like growing up and being abandoned by her mother, uh, discovering her love of music, falling in love with Ike Turner, becoming Tina Turner because she was anime Bullock and then Ike Turner kind of decided her fate that she would be Tina Turner, um, marrying him, being in a very abusive relationship with him, rising to stardom and having this outward appearance of having it all and just being a huge superstar. But then on the inside, just being completely tortured was the word she said in her documentary and abused. And then eventually through like getting involved with Buddhism, she finds herself and her voice and she is able to leave Ike Turner and have a huge comeback career in the 80s. And the movie ends just at the start of her comeback. Like we as the audience know what's to come. We know how famous and huge Tina Turner is, but this film ends right as she's about to hit her highest height of success. And Tina Turner is played by the fantastic Angela Bassett. Like her performance in this is so it's it's pitch perfect, as they would say. She's she's stunning in this. Um, and Lawrence Fishburne plays Ike Turner. So that's kind of the film in a nutshell. I love the way they set up this story. So for me, the beginning focus was so cool. They show us 
you know, when anime is very young, I don't know, do they say the year that it is? I don't know if they say the year. But I think I, I might be making it up. There might be a sign where it says it's Nutbush City Limits. She came from Nutbush. We see a church for sure. And I want to say like, maybe it's 1946, you know, it's around this time period. And we see a little girl in a church choir singing with her whole heart and she is not fitting in. And the church choir master is very upset about this and she wants her to be quiet and to just, you know, fit in with everybody else. But this little girl can't help it. She's singing this little light of mine and she just has to shine and let herself through. Um, so she gets kind of kicked out of the choir and she's heading home and we see from a distance uh, her mother like getting in a car and leaving her. The way they handle all of this exposition, even before the opening credits, is so subtle and so smart. They're not like banging us over the head with exposition. They're trusting that we're smart enough to get it. So I really loved all of that. I really loved it, too. I like uh, I like that you said subtlety, because especially when they show her as a little girl singing, they, she's also doing the, the signature shoulder shrug. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't know if, if she was doing that when she was that little, but I just loved those like little touches. And yeah, especially when we see from a distance what's happening with her mom, it kind of feels like you're being put into her shoes kind of as a child who is distant from the situation, may not understand what's going on, may not understand why her mother has made this decision, but is affected by it. And yeah, I just thought it was so, so lovely and just a very um, good example of, like you said, of, you know, we're going to trust the audience. They're going to come along with us. And I think I'm sure we'll get more into this as we talk, but I think the movie has such a good flow. It really does. It's so smart how they structure the movie and it's so smart how they show juxtaposition. I know a lot of people who were, nobody really criticized it necessarily, but the criticisms of this film were like, oh, it's not real life. It's, you know, there are inaccuracies. And I'm like, well, but it also has to be a story. We have to see a character arc. We have to see a difference from beginning to end. And so... Like, no matter what, in order to make a good story, even if it is based on someone's life, not everything is going to be exactly how it was lived. Um, and so I feel like they do such a good job of balancing the two things. Um, I'm okay that it's not perfectly, completely accurate because it we get the gist of her journey. We know how it feels versus like every instance being perfect. I actually think earlier I kind of touched on this where how I personally am not a big fan of biopics. I sometimes think they're a little bit dry and boring and people get really reverential about the subjects they're portraying. And to me, this just feels so, like you get the essence of Tina Turner, you really do, like mixed with a compelling story. And I'm wondering if it has to do with the fact that we're watching an entertainer, because the biopics I'm noticing I tend to love are specifically about female entertainers. So I wonder if just because that's the subject matter and because they typically female entertainers have had so much more to potentially overcome if that's what makes it more, I don't know, like fascinating as a viewer, as opposed to like a different kind yeah. of biopic. I, I think I think that that's definitely an element to it. And especially when you have somebody like Angela Bassett, an icon playing an icon, somebody so exquisitely talented playing somebody so exquisitely talented. And I think and, and you also have, you know, Lawrence Fishburne and Jennifer Lewis and all of these amazing performers. So it makes it hard not to be captivated. Not a female entertainer, but I actually watched 
get on up for the first time a little bit after um, Mr. Chadwick Boseman passed. And I'm I'm kind of the same way with biopics where I've seen a lot of them. A lot of them are kind of like, eh, I mean, even when the acting is really good, you're like not enthralled. But I do think there's something to say about the entertainer aspect because watching this and also watching um, Get On Up, I was completely present for everything. And Get On Up, um, Chadwick Boseman is playing James Brown. And it's it's the same energy where it just flows and you're like, I don't want to hit pause and go get a snack. I'm I'm here for this. I'm here for the ride. So I've definitely felt that way watching the movie. And I imagine, so I actually never saw that film it's been on my list and it's what I wrote as one of the double features, <laughs> but I haven't, I have meant to see it, but like, I haven't seen it. And um, I wonder if it's also because they were such electric performers too. And so when you have like exceptionally talented actors portraying electric performers, there's something incredibly special to that. When you see an actor really having fun, I mean, there were so many moments in What's Love Got to Do With It where she was just dancing her heart out or doing the signature moves or, you know, the first time she she sings in front of Ike Turner, where I just watched, I'm like, this just looks like fun. This just looks like a fun day at work. And there were other scenes, which we will get into, which uh, I imagine were very emotionally draining. But I do think a part of the, like, this is so fun to watch is like, it, it also happens when the work is fun to do. I haven't watched the whole thing, but I started watching the Tina documentary on HBO this morning. I'm about halfway through and just watching her perform live she is so free to know all of the things that were going on in her real life behind the scenes and what she was able to still show up and do every single day. The energy, the heart that she puts into her performances is incredible. And so you already have that like completely magnetic stage persona that's still incredibly authentic. So then, yeah, to have Angela Bassett come in, the like letting go, but still like, embodying another person must have been just such a joy to do for those parts. And I do also just want to say in general, I miss how 90s movies like look. There's a special look to a 90s film. You know what I mean? Like there's like a, a graininess of the film. There's a vibrancy, I think. I didn't really notice it until somebody else. I wish I could credit the person on Twitter, but this was like a couple years ago, so I wouldn't know. But there was somebody who actually watched... Um, uh, Pedro Almodovar, I butchered his beautiful name. I am so sorry. I will look it up. Uh, they watched Pain and Glory and they put up a still from Pain and Glory and there was so much bright color. And they were like, I miss when movies look like this because now, I'm not saying that it's bad. There's all sorts of amazing movies out. But I think so many use this sort of like dry, hipstery sort of like sapping it of its vibrancy. I do miss that 90s aesthetic. It had a little bit more of that oomph to it. it. It doesn't necessarily have to be incredibly realistic. Like there's more focus on a beauty of scenery and color, even in places that aren't beautiful. I, it's like that kind of idea. Now it's very realistic and monochromatic and gray. Yeah, there was just a special look to it. And I secretly also miss my little 90s like orchestral moments. <laughs> the opening score to this is great. It's got like this kind of... I don't know, like twang, like a down home, like Memphis-y twang that they're playing underneath. And then it goes orchestral and then it goes back into the twang. So it's like setting you up in a certain way that now we would be like, that's so obvious. But 
I think it adds elegance to things, you know, it tells you how to feel. It still works. Right? I was like, I just have to get that out there because for the podcast, we usually don't watch 90s movies. And the last two weeks, it's been like 90s movies. And I've been like, oh, my God, <sighs> I miss how they look. I don't miss like how everything was white. Same here. Same here. Don't miss, don't miss that. Something I was surprised to learn today was that Angela Bassett only found out she had the role a month before shooting. She only had one month to prepare for this. And we get like this performance. I cannot say it enough how fantastic her performance is. She completely embodies Tina Turner, a, a truly. And she was nominated for an Academy Award. She should have won. I, I don't know. I have never seen The Piano. Have you ever seen The Piano? I have not seen The Piano. But not only did she not win for this transformative performance, she has only been nominated once in her entire career. I just think of so many phenomenal Black women in this industry and Black people in general, Indigenous people and other people of color, who are absolutely legendary, but who don't get acknowledged by these systems. And I know people are like, some people are like, oh, words don't matter. And then some people say, well, recognition matters and all of that. All of that being said, you know, I'm very much somebody who, as a woman of color actress, can acknowledge that we can't always get our um, validity from systems that are not set up to reward people like us. However, I still do think that the recognition is meaningful um, yeah. and matters. And I mean, I know Angela Bassett is booked and busy and her fabulous self and confident and amazing and talented. But it is very disappointing to me to see the path of people like Angela Bassett and Alfre Woodard and Delroy Lindo in these award systems. Nothing against, um, it's Holly Hunter in the piano. It's Holly Hunter, I yeah. I love Holly Hunter. Man, I do love Angela Bassett. <laughs> Angela Bassett, her performance in this is just like so perfect. She only had a month to prepare. Her arms, like... Her arms are like the they are my dream arms. If my arms could just look that way without me having to do anything, I would pick, those are the arms I would choose. Those are the arms. And then when they had her in the sort of, um, I believe it was Bob Mackey who used to do some of Tina's, Tina Turner's yeah. older costumes. And when she was in those like really sexy outfits, I was like, You're, you've got her legs. You've got her, the Tina yeah. Turner legs. And I, I don't the mean legs. that in an objectifying way, but yeah. I feel like both internally and externally, Considering she only had a month to prepare, yes, she did that. Well, and I should mention that's that's not her voice singing. Um, that's Tina Turner recorded all of this again. Um, but this is Lawrence Fishburne singing. So Lawrence Fishburne really did sing as Ike, and then um, Tina Turner re like did all of her parts because she didn't want to use Ike Turner's real voice in this. And I do not blame her. But what you're saying too, what I was seeing was like just. Her complete stance. Tina Turner has such a specific stance and such a specific way of singing and moving her body. And there were times, I swear to God, when the camera would be far away and they're just showing Angela on stage performing as Tina and you forget for a minute. There, there's a second where you're like, did they put Tina Turner like in for this part? They must have. But they didn't. Her performance is that good. And even when she's like lip syncing, the expressions are exact because like you said, very specific way that Tina Turner moves, talks, sings, smiles, walks, and she really embodied that. And 
You know, I'm very glad that Tina was able to re-record and not include Ike in this. Mm-hmm. And I also think if I was a huge Tina Turner fan back then, I mean, I'm a huge Tina Turner fan now, but if I was like somebody a little bit older back then who was going to see this biopic, if she, if, you know, if Miss Bassett actually sang, I would just be like, she's good, but Tina... Tina's voice is so iconic. So, yeah, I just think it's it's just such a testament to her. And also Lawrence Fishburne. I had no idea he was singing. And that first scene when they're in the club and they have people grabbing the microphone. What an amazing way to, to set it up. And I feel like the movie did a really good job of before, you know, before the awful abuse begins, kind of seducing the viewer with yes. his allure. Because I think that's that's unfortunately what happens sometimes in these situations. So a large part of this film is about like her domestic abuse. Specifically watching the documentary, I had a hard time watching Ike be interviewed because to me, a lot of times abusers just kind of like lie in the world. They're so insecure in themselves that they can't they they can't be truthful about what is happening. It's so hard for me to watch. And so one of the things Lawrence Fishburne said about making this was his access to Ike was restricted. The director had said this too. Ike was not involved in the making of this and they were not really allowed to connect with him. And they were saying, oh, I think that's a shame. And I was saying, I don't think that's a shame. Knowing how abusers behave, knowing abusers in general, like they could not be involved. I think his performance is incredible because essentially what you were saying too, we were seduced in the beginning. We see a little bit of a slime, a little smarminess when he's like winking at the audience. And when we find out he's like slept with everybody there, we're kind of a little wary of him. But they do a really good job of charming us in the beginning along with Tina. I love that they also do this through, they do it through style. (laughs) Like the styles of the period, they show us like where their heads are at. Um, I think that's really cool. Uh, Like in the beginning when we see Ike, he's got like the 1950s look and he's got this like long jacket and spats and stuff. Um, And he looks so suave and, and very put together. And then we cut to young Anna Mae and she's like all buttoned up in like a little schoolgirl sweater with like more natural looking hair and the juxtaposition through the ages of how they look and what they go through is great. You're so right. There is a persona that abusers present to the public world versus mm-hmm. the private world. And something that I think was so apparent in the film and also the Tina documentary, in the film, there's a moment where there's multiple times where Tina tells her mom, because she ends up, you know, being reunited with her mom. And she says, I need to get away from him. I need you to believe, I need to get away from him. And her mom is like, well, he just bought me a house. And when she's noticing that he is being unfaithful to her, she expresses this to uh, her mom, played by the amazing Jennifer Lewis. And her mom just says, oh, he's just being a man. I did really feel for her because especially when an abuser has such a high profile and has this power and has this money and is providing for all these people that you love and you care about, it's hard to leave and feel like you're going to be supported. But something I, I loved about the movie that's also mentioned in the documentary when she finally divorced him, she's like, I don't want anything, but I want the name. And I, when I first saw the movie years ago, I just thought that that was something done for dramatic effect. And then watching the documentary, no, that's exactly what happened. She yeah. didn't have any money. 
she had her name. One of my introductions, even before I saw this film, was VH1 used to do Behind the Music. And there were two that were incredible in my memory. Like, I don't remember many of them, but I remember the TLC one being like so good. And I remember um, the Tina Turner one. I remember the moment about her, she talks about like, you know, leaving Ike, running to the Ramada and her name. And those were the three takeaways that I got. Um, from like that original behind the music all those years ago. Um, but I just can't believe that when you're watching that scene, you're like, how could a judge even do this? How could you know that like abuse had happened and be like, okay, Ike, you literally get everything. He got publishing rights. He got so many things. I think I read that she got like, what's it called when you um, can like turn down options for people to play your songs? What's that called? Publication rights or... Yeah, so she had like certain things besides her name, but it what like he got everything. And her name mattered so much, that's what she had built. And she was the star of their act. It was like, for me, one of the moments that stuck out in the film is after, I think it's right after he abuses her for the first time on camera. And they go on stage together and she's not singing. And he walks up to her, like backs up and gives her a kiss on the cheek. So if you're an audience watching that show, you're like, oh my God, this is so sexy and so romantic, not knowing what's really going on underneath. It's like this performative aspect of love and what our roles are supposed to be. So that moment like really hit home for me. And doesn't she, when he does that, there's like a tear streaming down her face. Yep. And then if you're in the audience, you're probably not going to see that. You're probably going to see it as, oh my gosh, they're so in love and she's crying because she's overcome with emotion. I think it's really... Uh, it's accurate that she was the star of the show. And there's another m moment in the movie when they're in the diner and those kids approach her and they call her Miss Turner. And he, he immediately Ooh, yes. is like, you're talking to a married woman. It's Mrs. Turner. And he keeps keeps trying to bring himself into these conversations and sort of interject anytime she's getting love thrown towards her. Tina has her own set of abandonment issues, like from her mother leaving her. And I feel like her mother does betray her in this. Her mother kind of has this sense of, again, played by the incredible Jennifer Lewis. Um, she has this sense of like, I'm always looking out for myself. So Tina has this issue of like, I know how badly it hurts to be abandoned. I can't abandon anyone. And if you put that in an abusive relationship with someone who has abandonment fears. So like Ike Turner's whole thing in this movie and in the documentary is people had left him before. He'd helped people rise up and become famous. And they leave him. So he's got this like chip on his shoulder and this whole victim act. And I mean, if we're being 100% real, Tina is the talent there. She's the performative talent. Like he's in the back. He's got his guitar. His voice isn't anything to write home about. She's the one who's doing all of the really heavy lifting for the act. Something that I didn't learn until I watched the Tina documentary was when she recorded River Deep Mountain High, it flopped in the U.S., Part of the reason it happened was because of pure racism. And now we think of that song and it is a legendary song. Like I always think whenever I hear the song, I think of the scene from this movie where she's yes. backed by this orchestra and she looks gorgeous and she is singing her heart out in front of this mic. And it's just wild to think that it flopped. And from what I remember of the documentary, I weaponized that. Like there's an interview with them where they're asking, so what do you think about River Deep Mountain High? And he's just just dismissing her talent and her hard work. And you you look at her in all of those old interviews and you just see there's no spark. And something else that I learned from the documentary that I didn't know 
was when the movie premiered. I think it was there's a footage I think from maybe Cannes, and she's with Angela Bassett and the director Tina Tina Turner is, and someone asks her, "Oh, have you seen the movie? What do you think?" And she's like, "No, I haven't seen the movie. Why would I want to relive?" the worst parts of my life. And something Angela Bassett says in the Tina Turner documentary, she says something along the lines of, it's so hard when some of the worst parts of your life happen to coincide with things that are really inspiring to people. And and when so much of your amazing music and your art came out of periods of your life that you do not want to revisit. And something I learned with the release of the biography and also the movie, Tina Turner wanted it to be like, Everybody is always asking me about Ike Turner. They're always asking me, long after we've divorced, how do you think Ike's going to react to this? What do you think Ike's doing? Do you think Ike's okay? Ike's in trouble. She's like, I wanted, this is my piece. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't want to fight anymore, the song. Ah, I don't want to fight anymore. And I think something that breaks my heart a little bit, especially after watching the documentary, is I feel like she's still constantly asked about that situation. And I can't imagine having to constantly relive it. And I also think whether this is tied to her Buddhism or just growing older, I think Tina has such a forgiving heart. And I'm not going to comment on what's right or what's not. But especially in the documentary, when she reflects on her life, the abuse wasn't worth it. He tortured her for like 17 years literally tortured her. The, the woman that wrote the screenplay for this, um, Kate Lanier, I think Lanier, Lanier. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, but she wrote the screenplay for this and she said she didn't even include, she had to take out a lot of the violence. You know, like Tina lived an intense amount of violence for a very long period of time while still being creative and like just putting on these incredible performances. That must be so difficult. And it's so interesting that that wasn't even the most successful part of her career. The fact that people don't want to talk about, like in the 80s, she made the biggest comeback of all time. You know, she went on to have number ones and sell all of these records. What, like five times platinum for two of her records over the age of 40? I think so. And I think I could be wrong. I think she's one of three black women to win either record of the year or album of the year. Or maybe both. The other two are... Whitney Houston and Lauren Hill, I think. And that's it. That's another that's conversation. It. Whitney Houston was actually the frontrunner to play this role, but became pregnant and couldn't do it. I did not know that. I didn't know that either. I miss her. I wish that she was around. The very first thing we see in this whole film is a Buddhist quote. And it says, the lotus is a flower that grows in the mud. The thicker and deeper the mud, the more beautiful the lotus blooms. So it's incredible that Tina was able to bloom but my God, to have to go through what she went through, I don't know if it sounds like what you're saying is she would not say that that was necessarily worth it at all. She says in the documentary, she's like, it was a, a life that was filled with so much pain and abuse. But she also seems like in her current age, because I believe the documentary was her retirement from public life, because I think she also had some health issues. But she has this remarkable sense of self and self-reflection. I, I think in the documentary, they ask her about Ike one more time. And she just said, he was sick. 
What else is there to say? I think arguably one of the most famous scenes from the movie is when she's running to the Ramada Inn. Yes. They very specifically in the behind the music, I will never forget. Every time I hear the Ramada, I'll be like, Tina, you know what? Let's let's dive into like the abuse scenes. So this is kind of like the elephant in the room when we get to the moments of physical abuse. First of all, I mean, the way they shot these moments, I think what this movie does really well is um, it knows how to give you anticipation for things. Because Ike is such a unpredictable character and person. You're never sure when the other shoe is going to drop. Because we as viewers know that he's going to become abusive. And we're kind of waiting and we're like, oh God, is this it? Is this it? And so when it happens, and they, the way they film it, where you don't always see everything, but you know what's happening, it's such a gut punch and it makes you so sick. When they're in their home and... I, I forget. I don't even remember why he gets upset with her because it doesn't matter. Abusive people don't need real reasons. But he knocks her behind a couch and we see him punching. So we don't even see her. We just hear her screams. And then he drags her through their, their house to the bedroom. And the, the kids see. It's like just it hurts. It hurts to watch. I know in real life, Angela Bassett actually was injured during that scene. She fell over the couch and and um, got a hairline fracture in her right wrist. They used the footage up until she fell because it was so realistic. But the scene, it makes you physically ill. And something I do remember from the documentary that I was watching this morning was Ike wasn't always as public with his abuse. It would happen behind closed doors a lot. So it would be like he'd pull her into the bedroom. He would hit her with something. She said it was hangers or like a shoe tree or whatever it was. And then he would have sex with her. He would rape her. They show that in the film, in the the music booth scene, which just is so, it's so hard to watch. That was yeah. brutal. I think it's so hard just in general to talk about abuse scenes because on the one hand, you want, you want to show the truth of somebody's life. And that unfortunately mm-hmm. was a big part of her life. But I think the question that I always ask, and I don't know what the answer is, is how much do you show? Yeah. And um, I think... Specifically, the music booth scene is just brutal. There's no other words. And it's, it's, uh, it's just so dehumanizing. And I think something to be said for that first scene when he first hits her, because I do think you're right. There are so many moments where you're like, oh, God, he's about to, he's about to do it. He's about to do it. Yeah. And then when it happens, it, it's still a shock. And you see all of the, the clues lining up. But that yeah. scene and then the scene right before she runs to the hotel... I think the image that just stays with me is her face just covered in blood. The scene, especially the one you're talking about, what I like that they do, this movie handles juxtaposition beautifully too. So like we had mentioned earlier, we start the movie with like, she's kind of childlike, he's very smooth. We end the movie with him being like out of control and not looking okay and her being so strong. But her final fight scene with him is the first time we see her in this film fighting back. And they get in a fight in the car. When she kicked him in the balls, I was like, thank God. So <laughs> I know it's terrible. I don't wish harm on people. But yeah, if you're abusive to someone for 17 years, I'm going to be grateful when she kicks you in the balls. So the scene when she runs to the Ramada, I actually rewound that like four times because it's so impactful. Um, so she's in a hotel in Dallas. They've just gotten into a fight. She's tried to escape him before. Um, and it didn't work out because of like, you know, several reasons, but also the betrayal of her mother really helped out with that. But she has to run across the street. It's very dangerous. There's all these cars. She gets to the Ramada and they show us her face. 
She asks for the manager and people take her seriously. That's something that feels good finally, because when they first get to the fancy hotel, people are not taking them seriously. But the scene with the manager, when they pan to her face and you see the pain in Angela Bassett's eyes, like the, the fear, the scaredness, but then you see the way her face is puffed up and the blood like you were talking about. That moment was so well done. Again, I, I just kept rewinding it to watch what Angela was doing, the choices she was making. And, you know, I, I loved the whole interaction with the manager believing her, with saying like, no, you don't have to pay me anything. My wish for people who are going through abusive situations is that they find people who will help them in that way. Yeah, yeah. It, it really felt like in that moment she finally found somebody, like you said, yes. who took her seriously and didn't ask anything of her. I think a pivotal scene that happens before this moment is when she visits her friend who used to be one of the backup mm-hmm. singers. Yeah. And they do impressions of Ike. Oh, my God. Yes. And it goes from like this funny, like, ah, so silly to her weeping. And that's yeah. when she gets introduced to Buddhism and chanting. Yeah. And I think it's just so lovely to see this inner peace finally start to happen within her. And that leads her to this moment where she stands up for herself. Mm-hmm. She gets away. It's just so beautiful. And it, it's just it's just lovely to see a moment of such compassion extended to her because we've spent a, a solid chunk of the movie seeing her being abused and disbelieved and and yeah. tortured. Well, and I think what's like hard to just hold in real life, too, is that that friend was not real. They wrote that friend for the movie, you know. So one thing I recall also from the documentary <laughs> was that her son was like, my mom had no one to turn to. She was always on the road. She had us kids. She didn't really have any friends. And that's an abusive tactic, keeping friends away, keeping people who care about you away. And so in real life, there was a woman named Jackie who was a Buddhist who she met, but it wasn't her backup singer. It wasn't a close friend. So that broke my heart. The scene when she calls her mom in my head, I'm going, why aren't you calling your friend Jackie? And it's because in real life. There was no Jackie. There was no Jackie. And I remember in the documentary when one of her sons just describes witnessing a horrific, horrific scene of abuse. And I won't go too far into detail, but he talks about how scalding coffee was poured on her and gave her third degree burns. And he said, you know, I turned her, he didn't apologize for, you know, abusing my mother. He apologized that, oh, you know, she got these inconvenient burns as if he had nothing to do with it so it's wonderful to see her um break away from that i will say this i think the one part of the movie that does not hold up and it is not the movie's fault is phil specter because it was made before he murdered miss lana clarkson and uh it's not the movie's fault but it is interesting like seeing him in in that wig and being such a mysterious helpful figure and i was like oh not you sir not you if we put the modern lens on it i was like ooh, that does not hold up it's so funny that they're yeah they're being so reverential to phil specter and we all know now like oh that man is a murderer him and his wall of sound and just like maybe to step aside for a second so we can all catch our breath just can we talk about ike turner's wigs can we just for one moment 
go into that awful, awful, what is this, like a fake Beatles wig? What was that horrible hair? It looks like a bowl cut wig. And I feel like I've seen memes of that, of like Lawrence Fishburne as Ike Turner in that specific wig so many times because it's, and I wonder if it's like, is it kind of meant to kind of make him look a little ridiculous? So what I took from it this time was it happens right after he's being asked about the Beatles and he's like, you know, fuck the Beatles. And then the next scene, he's got like the fake Beatles hair. And I'm like, oh, really, Ike? That really? makes sense. When he finally gets to the Afro, I was like, okay, this looks so much better on you. So much better. I just associate that specific look with so many memes. I am totally with you on there. And then speaking of the British invasion, I, I don't know whether she says it in the movie. I know in the movie she says, well, I, well, I like the Beatles. I like them. Yeah. In the documentary, I think it's so interesting where she says, you know, I wanted to fill stadiums like Mick Jagger. No shade to Mick Jagger. I really enjoy his music. But the first thought I had was, black women like you invented rock and roll. All the credit goes to you. Yeah. And I and I know what she was saying. I think she was fighting up against the system and she was able to really sell out stadiums like the Rolling Stones. But it kind of made me sad that she even had to have that thought. Yes. Well, and like if we're going back to maybe what doesn't always hold up, like the modern lens was when Roger Davies at the end is interviewing her. And what she's saying is like, I want to perform more than R&B. But she kind of it's almost like she has to put down R&B in the process in order to like elevate the other kinds of music and like no shade on Tina, because what she's trying to say is like, I want to do everything. I want to explore in all these different kinds of sounds. But I just felt like what a shame that like we're putting these words in your mouth where you have to like kind of shit on R&B music. I bet she didn't really say something like that. I bet like what she said was more all encompassing. And I always just think there's so many articles about how black women in music now of, an, of the next generation are reclaiming the mantle of black women dominating rock and roll because it started mm -hmm. with them. It's so wild. I, I, I think it's so wild that so many people don't associate rock and roll with the people who started it. Yeah. When people yeah. act as if, you know, amazing black musicians didn't invent that genre and they get erased from it and they don't get awarded for it and they get ridiculed. And they call her the queen of rock and roll after she starts working with like with white people. Like after she starts working with Rod Stewart and Brian Adams, now she's the queen of rock and roll. And it's like, no, have you seen her in the 60s and 70s? Did you see what she was doing? Always the queen <laughs> of rock and roll. She she invented the things that a lot of your favorites stole. I'm sorry, Miss Tina. I'm sure she wouldn't word it like that because she's much more kind and graceful. But I'm like, yeah. there are people who stole her moves, who stole her sound. Um, but I, I'm just so grateful that she was able to claim claim yeah. that. I feel like I just heard that she was only just now inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I was like, how did it? How? 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 How, how did that happen? Because she was like inducted in the 90s before this film came out with Ike Turner. And I was like, wow, that must have hurt. And then, um, yeah, like what, 2019 or something? Very recently, she herself was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, just without Ike, finally, as a solo artist by herself. You know, I never made that observation going back about the wig, but it completely makes sense that he's He's insulting the Beatles, and then the very next scene is that particular yep. wig. And it was terrible looking. I just, it it's, so, really... it's so, so bad. Oh, it's so, it's so bad. bad. Well, and then the other thing with that I was realizing this time that I don't think I would have realized as a younger viewer was like 
the like Tina Turner wearing wigs and like not really being able to have her natural hair because when she tried to have her natural hair and they dyed it blonde, it came out because they, you know, they weren't doing it properly, you know, that would not have, I would not have understood that when I was younger. Just like, what a shame that she didn't get to kind of choose her own aesthetic and that she had to like fit into the box of like. The scene in the movie where all of the, women that are backup singers and her wear the wigs. I think that was like mm-hmm. kind of a scary moment because Ike comes in and snatches, like literally snatches the wig off of one of the backup dancers and you yes. think he's about to hit people. Mm-hmm. And then he goes, who did this? It's a genius idea. It is interesting looking at it through a modern lens because, yeah, when I was younger, I probably would not have known about natural hair. I Before I moved to LA, I worked for about a year at a natural hair salon as a receptionist. And it was an amazing experience. There were so many beautiful women who worked there and came into that um, salon. And I learned so much about natural hair. And it was wonderful to see so many um, of these women, like whether not everybody who came to the salon had natural hair, but so many of them who had natural hair were rocking it as they should because it's gorgeous. But yeah. it does break my heart a bit, especially in the movie, when it does seem like her natural hair is treated as if it's not good, it's not right. It's something to, like, be changed. And especially when it's literally burned off. Yeah, that was really hitting me. I just want for her to feel empowered, however she feels empowered. And so it's always, like, a shame that especially up, basically, I feel like till now, natural hair was not really spoken about. Like, the fact she felt like she had to hide it. You know, and I feel like especially back then, I mean, considering it still happens now, there are so many um, black men and women, friends of mine and non-binary folks in the industry who will get to set and there's nobody there to do their hair or the person who does their hair burns their hair or rushes them through or or like will literally tie it up in a ball and not do anything to it. I'm glad that people are talking about it more like people in positions mm-hmm. of power who should be taking like should be taking the initiative but i think if it's still bad now i can't imagine what it was like back then they were saying like tina and her whole like backup singers all of them did everything themselves their costumes their hair their makeup they did all of it speaking of somebody who has been inspired by miss tina turner mm-hmm. that's what beyonce's mother Miss Tina Lawson had to do. She would literally sew all of the Destiny's Child right. outfits. And I remember, I can't remember who the person was that said it, whether it was Beyonce or um, Kelly Rowland or Michelle Williams. One of those women shared that even at their most popular, there were major fashion houses that refused to make costumes for them. Because they were racist. That's like disgusting and terrible. And you're like, how, how is this happening? How is this still happening? I think Beyonce accepted a, like a fashion award a few years ago. And she just talked about how she learned about amazing style from one of her biggest influences with, was her mother. And yeah. um, she just sewed all these outfits together. And I think Beyonce said something, you know, I, you know, dreaming of a world where so many different looks and sizes and styles and shapes are appreciated. But I just yeah. think, yeah, you know, I just 
I can't imagine, I can't imagine what it was like back then. It's kind of important to also mention, I forgot to say this at the top of the show, usually I explain why I, like we chose a movie. And with this one, we had kind of like talked before, like, okay, so well, what do you want to watch? And you were like, I'm really interested in watching films from like people of color's perspective. Um, and so I'm so glad, like the choices that we went through, like I'm so glad that we chose this because it's like, it shows you everything that you need to see it makes it palatable for people who might not understand that they're being like taught something. I feel like the writers and the director and the creative team and whole behind this movie really trust the audience. And I think you said, you know, they're not being so obvious with everything. They're not having yeah. somebody come in and say, in this year, Tina Turner moved here. It's just like <laughs> it, they trust the audience to go along for the ride and you learn as you go along. Well, and part of the genius, part of the way they do that so beautifully, I'm so sorry, nor like I normally get to the movie more, but like Tina has been so fascinating to learn about that I cannot help injecting it because it's just been like, I'm reawakened by her right now. Like learning all of this about her has been completely fascinating to me. But what they do so beautifully in the film is they show us not only time through montage and through music montage, which is like a cool classic thing to do. They take us in time through their music, but also they like one of the quote unquote inaccuracies is they put songs in that make sense with the moment versus when they came out in their real careers. So she's singing her song about like, I want to be made over when they're giving her like a makeover montage. And she's singing fool in love with like, what are those lyrics where they're like, if he's so good, why is he treating you bad? Right. They're playing that underneath after she's just been abused. Like they're so clever about where they do song placement and how the songs are telling a story as well. And the, again, with the montages, we're hearing their real music, we're seeing these performances, and it can trip along through time. It trusts that we're smart enough to follow based on their costume changes and based on like where they're performing in a said moment. I just think it's so smart the way they keep it flowing and how they keep it flowing with their music and what the music is telling us story-wise. Yes, I completely agree. And I also love, there's a moment, I believe it's when they run off to Mexico to get married and the filter changes between the colors and then black and white. I thought that was such a fantastic choice because it brings you right back to all the photos that we've seen of that era. So it feels like you are, even though people living in that area were not seeing things in black and white, it kind of makes you, I don't know, it kind of takes those pictures and makes them come to life. What I noticed in that moment was um, that was the first time that Ike is cruel to her that we see as an audience. So thank you for adding that like layer to it of like, we're getting a sense of the time and place. And they're like making us feel nostalgic in a weird way, but then also advancing the plot with this like Ike leaving her behind. When Ike is saying, yeah, I, I don't think the British invasion is legitimate. And Tina is just filing her nails and she's kind of looking ahead. And this is after I believe he's started to have abused her. And watching the documentary, she talks about how, oh yeah, in that moment, this is what was happening behind closed doors. And it's in black and white. And it's taking you right back to that moment, but you can sense that tension. I do want to make sure, like, because we still have to get into, like, Angela Bassett and Lawrence Fisherman, but, like, I want to make sure that we touch on, like, the four abuse scenes and how they're shot, too. There's, like, four, four kind of abuse scenes. Before we get, like, a ton of physical abuse, we see the abuse of him taking advantage of her after she's had a baby. That, what a cruel scene. Like... You know, Tina Turner, Anna Mae, has just had a child, Ike's child, 
and he expected her immediately after childbirth to honor tour dates that he set up. Um, and she's very physically ill and he, you know, steals her from the hospital. Essentially, they do it at night because the doctor isn't there and he kind of forces her to perform when she is not really capable of that and then shames her and blames her for not being healthy enough to perform. Um, that's like the first cycle of abuse. And then we start to see like the physical abuse with that couch scene when, you know, he's punching and dragging her, which just like that scene hits really, really hard. I think for anyone, the red carpet, just all of it. And that's really what their home looked like. So we have that. Then we have the fish tank scene, right? We see one of the most harmful abuse moments through a fish tank. I just, I was like, I know this is brilliant. I know it's telling me something. And I was trying to decipher exactly what it meant. Like, what do you make of like that moment being shot that way? I wonder if, if, if it's maybe a commentary on how these brutal, horrific moments can happen in very everyday places. When I think of a fish tank, I think of serenity and how that's disturbed by this awful violence. Going back to that first scene when he literally forces her out of the hospital, I think he yeah. does something so terrible. He takes something that she loves and he weaponizes it because he sings to her. I think he sings <sighs> to her fool in love, I think, just a fool in yeah. love. And he's like trying to get her and she's initially she's resisting and then she starts singing. And that that's another tactic that abusers use. They take the thing that makes you most strong, makes you feel most alive. They turn it on you. And I think that yeah. was really, really tragic to watch. Yeah. We had touched on this earlier about how it's like he wants her to be a star because he feels like it reflects well on him. But he also has this jealousy about her being the star and the, the need to just push her down in private, like to have that control over her that, you know, in public, you know, I'm so proud of this. But then that like abusive in private, just the dualism of that and like the abusive tactics involved in all of that. The last one I wrote was the car, and we talked about that the first time she fights back for herself. I mean, I definitely want to talk about Angela Bassett in real life. She's so cool. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. She's so cool. Like, reading about her, there's not a ton about her. Like, both her and Lawrence Fishburne, no wonder they're so, like, stable and together. There's not a lot about them on the internet, right? So it's like, we don't, I don't have that much information. But yeah, Angela Bassett... Uh, grew up kind of, I think she started off in New York City, then was in North Carolina for a little bit, then was in Florida, and was like a star high school student. She was a cheerleader, and she was in every club, and she got good grades, and she was in the National Honor Society. And then she goes to Yale, and she gets her like bachelor's in African American studies. And then she's like, I want to be an actor. I'm going to go to the best program in the country and gets her MFA at Yale. It is so hard to get into that program. And I think that's where she met Courtney B. Vance. That's where she meets Courtney B. Vance, who is also just like a treasure and a joy. When I found out that she was married to him, I was like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Two brilliantly talented, beautiful people. Who deeply love and respect each other. She's into just like humanitarian work. Like she does work with UNICEF. Um, so like just excellent human all around. I love how she opens a lot of her Instagram posts with like, hey, everyone, you good? You know, you good? And it's just like always this like gorgeous photo of her. I looked at like the official, I think it was the Vanity Fair portrait of her at this past year's Oscars. And I was like, you, you look amazing. You have always looked amazing. You're just like 
radiant and gorgeous. There is an interview she did where someone asked her, I don't know whether they asked her what is her dream role that she hasn't played or what is a role that she would like to play. And she immediately goes into a Lady M monologue and it is perfect. She would be such a good Lady M. Was the hope drunk. I think that was the monologue. She just went into it and she's, she's working with the camera. Amazing. Oh my God. Just Google it. You will be amazed. So Angela Bassett, people at home, some things that you may know her from are most recently, I mean, Black Panther. Everybody saw that. So you saw her in that. Um, how Stella got her groove back. I I really like her in that. I she that is movie. fantastic in that. I feel like it gets flat because it's a romantic movie and you're like, people, it's good. It's good. And she's so confident in her skin. I feel like there's so much ageism along with racism in this industry. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why can't this gorgeous woman just feel so confident in herself at whatever age? And like buck what society tells her and be with a person who sees the light in her as well no matter his age yes we never complain Um, when when men have love interests and wives in movies that are 30 or 40 years younger than them i mean we complain the people in power are like no that's normal i can't handle that it's we talk about that on the podcast all the time because i get so infuriated and frustrated (laughs) by all of that more of her movies, People at Home, I mean, Waiting to Exhale, Malcolm X, Boys in the Hood, Akila and the Bee, uh, she was just in Soul recently, she was in Contact, Music of the Heart, Vampire in Brooklyn, um, and then like recently she was in the show 911 and American Horror Story. Those are just like some of the roles she's played. They're all over the spectrum. They're all over. Malcolm X know- was the other movie that we talked about doing. Yes. Well, and I am embarrassed to say I've never... I've never seen the whole movie because I know it's it's long and it's sad and I've always been I've always been afraid. That Sophie's Choice and Schindler's List are like three movies that I'm like I should watch all of these. You will get to it. I I still have not seen Sophie's Choice. I fear this the sadness of it. But I will say with Malcolm X before I watched it, I was like, oh gosh, cuz I believe it's 3 over 3 hours. It was honestly though one of those movies I started it and I had to make myself go to bed because it was getting so late at night. But I was just so drawn into the so story. Nice. And uh, Spike Lee does such a good job of um, really showing every single aspect of Malcolm X, who he was before he became what he is known to be today. It's beautiful. I think that's probably my favorite movie of all time. So when you have a chance, it, it will oh be a difficult God. watch. But... It's also just so stellar. Yeah, Denzel Washington in that. It's Denzel and then um, Angela Bassett. Christopher Plummer's in there. Like, it looks phenomenal. Like, again, the only reason, you know when you know a movie's gonna, you're worried about how sad you're gonna be. It's like one of those where you're like, there's no excuse, I need to go see it. And then she had said about her performance in that, Angela Bassett, she was like, I was worried after that performance that I would never feel as fulfilled by a role again. She was like, that was one of the most fulfilling roles I've ever played. It's, uh, it's, you can tell the movie is made with such love. It's made with such love. And yeah. now we're getting on a tangent about Malcolm X. It's, it's so good. If it gets more people to watch Denzel Washington and Angela Bassett in a Spike Lee joint. I was watching this interview with um, Spike Lee where he said there was this moment in the shooting of the movie where... Denzel Washington is giving this iconic speech from Malcolm X, and then he just started improvising. The words just came out, and they all made sense. And Spike Lee has also said, you know, it just felt, because Denzel did so much work beforehand, 
it just felt like he was living and breathing the character. And then Angela yeah. Bassett in that movie. There is a scene, and, and it's not a big spoiler, but there's a scene where he's on the phone with her and you can feel the tenderness, even though they're not even in the same physical space. He's just on the phone. And this is before they get married, I think. It is so, so beautiful. Well, and also, I don't know if you feel this way. I feel like since being a person that loves classic movies and movies, there's so many movies that you're like, and my first experience with that is done. So to have like a first experience of a movie you know is going to be good is yeah. just like something to look forward to. There's some where I'm like, I'm going to take this like some cough syrup. This movie, the first time I watched it, I was like, I, I can't wait to watch this again. This is so great. Uh, we haven't talked about Lawrence Fisherman, but I want to point out like he and Angela Bassett love working together. They work together. He says they've worked on four projects together. So I think it's three movies and one play that he was talking about. But he had turned down this role five times before saying yes. He ends up saying yes when he finds out Angela Bassett is going to play Tina. That's so wholesome. It makes sense. Like, you read the script, you're like, okay, I'm playing the villain. I'm playing the villain. What can I bring to this? Um, and he said that for a while after this film, it was like... Black women especially gave him, like, side-eye. I hate you for that role. And I was just like, well, yeah, you did a great job at playing this this role. But he, he said he found a way in through Ike's childhood. That was, like, how he found his roots in it. Um, he does a fantastic job. I feel like both with him and with Angela Bassett, you forget that they are them. You completely believe that they are Ike and Tina Turner. Yes, yes, absolutely. Tina is such, like, a big performer. It could have been this over-the-top thing that doesn't work, but... Angela Bassett finds the balance of like complete authenticity of the moments while still wearing this character. It's great. And I think, again, L Larry, Larry Fishburne, I'm calling him because we're old buddies now. <laughs> <laughs> He's able to do what doesn't feel like an impression. It's the same thing that she's doing, like just finding his way in that skin and finding a way into doing these acts that are monstrous, but like making them believable like it feels very real part of why we're so horrified when these awful things are happening is because he makes them feel so real as opposed to like you're watching a soap opera or this big over-the-top drama absolutely absolutely again all of the the fight scenes i do want to also mention that in real life ike turner was talking about the inaccuracy of the moment in the sound booth when he when he does like rape tina turner and he was saying well that never happened in real life but it sounds like the reason it never happened in real life that way was because it happened in many other ways. So I do want to just like, in real life, Ike Turner is like, this thing never happened and that thing never happened. But the essence of those things happened in other ways. Something in the documentary that I think is so lovely is the last chapter of it is just dedicated to her being with the love of her life now who treats her so well. The last chapter is just called Love. And you see her beautiful house and the love that she's built with her husband and... Just watching it, you're like, good for you. You deserve that. You deserve the world. I wrote down, it's Erwin Bach, and they've been together since, like, 1986. Uh, yes, yes. And she, right before that, they play the footage, like, they play the recordings of Kurt Loder interviewing her for Itina, and she's telling him, I've never had real love in my life. And she's like, the, the tears aren't out of pity. I just want, like, and she's just, you can tell she wants it so badly. And she, yeah. but she's like, but I need to be ready for it. And then uh, it happens. Oh, so beautiful. I do want to talk about Lawrence Fishburne really quickly. So he was born in Georgia, in Augusta, Georgia, and then his parents divorced and he moved with his mom to Brooklyn. And he kind of starts his career pretty young. Like he starts acting as a teenager and he ends up doing like a little bit of TV, stage work, things like that. 
he ends up getting really good work and he wins a Tony Award for an August Wilson play, Two Trains Running. Um, some of his big famous roles are Morpheus in The Matrix. Um, he's on Blackish. He was in, I never saw the play Thurgood. Did you see the play Thurgood? I did yeah. not. I unfortunately did not see it. He's in Mystic River. He does this really great Othello. He's in Higher Learning, Searching for Bobby Fischer. We have not really talked about Boys in the Hood. But both he and Angela Bassett, that's their first time really working together in Boys in the Hood. I need to see that movie. That's John Singleton, right? I still haven't yes. seen Boys in the Hood. That is my one. It's There's no reason for me. I haven't avoided it. It's just one of those where I'm yeah. like, I'm going to see that. I'm going to I'm, I'm, I'm gonna see that. And then I don't. But this gives me incentive to see it because all the names attached to it are stellar. It's a fantastic movie. Like it's I didn't know much about it. And I. I was fortunate enough that I my first my first experience with that movie was with John Singleton. I went to Oh my god. Yeah. I went to TCM Fest did a special presentation where they interviewed him for like a half an hour before the movie. And it is one of the best presentations I've ever like been to that they've done. Um he had so many thoughtful things to say. He he gave you so many great behind the scenes things. Am I correct in Boys in the Hood was his best director nomination? Yes. He's one of six black directors to be nominated for Best Director. And a horrible fact is the black director has never won. Never? Never. Uh, um, a black woman's never even been nominated. It's just like so much frustration. I love what you were saying earlier. You phrased it so well with the way you were describing the situation of like, is it worthy to even get these accolades? But I think like... It's so frustrating that they don't exist when so much talent and artistry is there and should be acknowledged. Um, but yeah, Boys in the Hood was, it was excellent. Like it is a masterful piece of film. And he talks about during the making of it, they gave him like so much carte blanche. <laughs> and so he would rent out a movie theater and every night he would watch a film that was important to him. And so he's like shooting the film and like watching films that are meaningful to him and like putting it into his film. It just became so meaningful. <laughs> That's so beautiful. I think it makes such a difference when somebody who truly loves, loves, loves movies injects that into their work. The reason why I know about the thing about Best Director is I looked up specifically last year, you know, when the much needed protests were happening. I was yeah. like, who else has been nominated for Best Director that is a black director? Is John Singleton for Boys in the Hood. Steve McQueen for 12 Years a Slave, Lee Daniels for Precious. Did Spike Lee get nominated for Black Klansman? Maybe. I can't remember. Jordan Peele got nominated for Get Out and Barry Jenkins for Moonlight. They did an interview with, with some of those black directors. John Singleton had... Wait, no, John Singleton was still alive when they did the interview. And it was just wild to see all those faces and to know that none of them have won. And I remember when I watched Malcolm X, before I knew this awful fact that not one black director has won, I remember Googling it and I was so certain that Denzel won Best Actor and that Spike Lee won Best Picture and Best Director. They didn't win any of those things. Spike Lee was not even nominated for Best Picture or Best Director. You're right, because Denzel won for Glory and Training Day. Right. And I again, it's it's that battle of like we, we can't always look to awards for validation. But I think the frustration I feel is like, you know, when something is the best, we still only have one best actress winner who is a black woman in the history of the entire which Angela Bassett turned down that role mm -hmm. that it went to Halle Berry. Angela, I read this today because I, I 
I never saw that movie. I'm so happy Halle Berry won, but it ends up being a very sexualized role. That's why Angela Bassett turned it down because she wasn't comfortable with being portrayed that way. So like, yeah, only one black woman has one best actress and it's for a role that is deeply sexualized. And the thing that breaks my heart is Halle Berry did an interview not too long ago where they asked her, you know, reflecting on that moment because she says in her speech, the door is now open for so yeah. many other black women, women of color. And Halle Berry's like, yeah, I learned that it didn't mean anything. Didn't open yeah. any doors. And that's not Halle Berry's fault. It's the industry, no. but it... It just is a statistic that I find to be disgusting. Yeah. I also mentioned people at home. Lawrence Fishburne was Cowboy Curtis on Pee Wee Herman, on Pee Wee's Playhouse. That will always blow my mind. And that's how he met John Singleton. John Singleton was working on Pee Wee's Playhouse and they formed a connection. And that's how Lawrence Fishburne ended up being in Boys in the Hood. He like wrote that part for Lawrence Fishburne. I love that story. But I wanted to read a quote that Lawrence Fishburne said about working with Angela Bassett because he he loved working with her. They're both so intelligent and they're both so like free with each other. And that's what he says. So he says, um, an electrifying thing happens when the two of us work together. I haven't experienced it with anyone else. A freedom happens when we work together. And I totally feel like you see that. I think they can pull off scenes like this because they trust each other as actors so implicitly. I imagine shooting scenes like this, like shooting abuse and rape scenes would take such a toll on you as an actor. And it seems like it can only happen in this way because they both trust and support each other so, so well. I definitely think like having somebody that you completely trust to be so vulnerable with is yeah. pretty is pretty key. I want to just mention the director is Brian Gibson. Um, he directed not a ton of stuff, but like the Josephine Baker story came up before this and The Juror. And he passed away in 2004. I noticed that he produced the film Frida with Salma Hayek. And I know that's like a Harvey Weinstein also produced feature. So I was wondering the connection there, but I don't know. Um, and then I want to mention Kate, Kate Lanier or Kate Lanier wrote the screenplay. And um, she also wrote Beauty Shop and Set It Off, which are two like. Oh my gosh. Great. Iconic. Yeah. She wrote the Crazy Sexy Cool TLC story, which I 100% watched. Oh, yes. Oh, I do love, um, I love that the movie closes. So in real life, one of the things that Ike was saying too was that like that scene, I never showed up at her dressing room with a gun. And I think this scene is so important in the film. Like obviously it's something that very likely did not happen in real life. Well, because in real life, when you're dealing with abusers, you just have to walk away, period. You don't look back. You don't connect with them. You don't talk to them. So that's not going to happen in real life. But in this film, Ike shows up in Tina's dressing room before her big, like, comeback show, and he's got a gun, and he's threatening her. She's being threatened. And she needs to have this choice as a character to, like, complete her full character arc in the story of being 100% faced with, like, all of the danger and everything Ike represents and saying, like, no, I'm going to be my authentic self and I'm not going to be afraid of you. Like, as a character... That's what they wanted us to kind of feel from that, I think. And so I'm glad they put it in the movie. But I do like also want to mention in real abusive situations, like I was stressed out for her. Like, why did no one stop him? Why is he there? How ah, did he get past security never be with, with your abuser? abuser? Yeah. But yeah, I think that was an important moment that they added to the film to round out the story of like she faces the monster one last time and she has the opportunity of like, which way are you going to go? Are you going to really like stand up for yourself 100 percent 
or are you going to go back to the way you felt before? And so I felt like they did that for storytelling purposes very clearly, but I wanted to bring that moment up. I'm yeah. so glad that moment didn't happen in real life because it's so terrifying. So we have that. And then um, I also wanted to just bring up um, the real Tina concert at the end, how we cut from Angela Bassett singing What's Love Got to Do With It, which the real Tina Turner didn't even like that song. I know. Life. Yeah, she did not like that song. And then they kind of revamped it. So we get Angela Bassett singing in the concert and then it transitions to a real Tina Turner concert and we get Tina herself. So glorious. Oh, it's great. And what a great way to end it. The last shot of the film. Also, what I love about a Tina Turner performance is she goes for it 100%, but also like isn't afraid to like sweat and look imperfect necessarily. Like it's so perfect. And she she doesn't care about like that. That doesn't hinder her because me, I'm a sweaty person. I sweat and I get embarrassed about it. And she's like, I am still me and I am performing everything and you're going to get my whole heart. And it's fabulous. But it ends on her like she is just smiling from the depths of her soul. And it's a shot of just her real life face. And that's the last shot of the film. Beautiful. (laughs) beautiful what a way to end it because you're like yes i know we told this harrowing tale but don't worry at home like this is where we end up she ends with joy completely i love that the the last moment is a shot of her gorgeous face doing the thing she she does so perfectly and just seeing the love of the audience um and then just the buddhism we touched on but i do love that they put buddhism in this and kind of offer it to people essentially of like this might be something that you could try I love that it helped her. Yeah, I I love the focus on that since it brought her so much peace. That's the movie. We're going to head into the double feature portion of this show. So I would say if you want to watch like a really good Angela Bassett and Lawrence Fishburne film together, it's not tonally with this feature, but they are both in it and it's a great film. Boys in the Hood, I highly recommend that all people watch. It's a really great film. I would say biopic wise, I wrote down Get On Up, which I have not seen, but I think it would probably go really well. James Brown has a similar vibe to Tina Turner on stage of just effervescent visceral energy. Yeah. And I mean, the flip of it is they do go into how James Brown abuse was an abuser (sighs) himself. And Chadwick Boseman is so good in it. Phenomenal. I I had my, you know, I I wasn't sure how I would feel about it because I... I just, I don't know how I never watched it when it came out, but after he passed, everybody was like, you got to watch Get On Up, and I do not regret it. I mean, he definitely deserved an Oscar for that. Um, and I mean, we've been talking about it so much, the Tina documentary. The Tina documentary, check it out. It's on HBO Max. Um, I actually also wrote down uh, Selena. I was really getting Selena vibes from this. Like, even down to some of the outfits, I was like, oh, Selena would have worn that. But just, I think Selena is a great example of a biopic and how a biopic can like be entertaining and tell a story, but still be really true to a person. What else? I mean, I wrote down Dream Girls, <laughs> a story that goes through fashions and time about incredibly talented women and, you know, abuse from the men who are trying to like run their careers. The movies that I wrote down were like, I wrote down La Bamba, Why Do Fools Fall in Love? A Star is Born, Cadillac Records, Introducing Dorothy Dandridge, How Stella Got Her Groove Back. No one is expected to watch all of those. My top one is probably, um, for me, it would be Selena, but Get On Up would probably be, and the Tina Turner documentary. I think they are two very good companion pieces, and they're just, those characters are embodied by two such amazing talents, and God bless Chadwick Boseman. Like, truly, what an exceptional human actor. I wish that we we had more time and more performances from him. When I was watching Get On Up, he was very transformative. It was interesting to see him play a 
very flawed, complicated character, while still honoring the impact, but also making room for some of the not so great things, but really just delving inside the humanity. He's exceptional. Well, yeah, that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was such a delight. And everyone, I need to come up with a new catchphrase because you can't see us, but we'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Rukmini K. Desai. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find our page on anchor.fm and become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content. Thanks for listening.